Welcome back everyone. In this class we're going to talk about neurogenic bladder. This is the most complex form of bladder dysfunction. It's also the type that you're least likely to see. We're going to review pathology, etiology, and clinical presentation, but our primary focus will be on uh, diagnosis and management. So the title tells you a lot, neurogenic bladder dysfunction. So you know that there's a problem with bladder function and you know that the basic etiology and pathology is some kind of neurologic process. So by definition, neurogenic bladder is lower urinary tract dysfunction caused by some kind of neurologic lesion, neurologic process. You see loss of bladder control in a patient who has a known brain, spinal cord, or peripheral nerve process. Now, the interesting thing about neurogenic bladder is you can see many different clinical pictures because what you see is going to be determined by the site of the lesion and the severity of the lesion. We tend to divide neurogenic bladder into three clinical pictures based on location of the neurologic process. So we'll start at the top with central nervous system lesions, brain lesions. This is your patient with a stroke. This is your patient with Parkinson's. These patients typically retain awareness of bladder filling, but they have reduced or total loss of the ability to delay voiding until it's socially appropriate. So they will tell you, yes, I know, but I can't hold it, I can't wait. Spinal cord lesions present very, very differently. Most patients with spinal cord pathology have very limited awareness of bladder filling. Many of them have no awareness at all. They have a marked reduction or total loss of the ability to either delay voiding or to initiate voiding. So let's talk about each one of those in a little bit more detail. So we've already said, if you look at brain lesions, central nervous system lesions, the most common is stroke. The second probably most common is Parkinson's disease. Traumatic brain injury patients also have problems with incontinence as do patients with MS affecting the brain. So remember how critically important the cortex is. Sensory feedback from the bladder is processed through the midbrain sent to the cortex. Feedback about where you are and what you're doing is also sent to the cortex and then the cortex makes the decision, is this an appropriate time and place to void? If the answer is yes, the cortex releases its inhibition of the midbrain centers and then they activate the pons to initiate voiding. If the decision is no, inhibition of those midbrain centers is maintained and voiding is delayed. So if you have something going on at the level of the cortex, it's going to compromise your ability to process that sensory input to make appropriate decisions about voiding and to inhibit those midbrain centers until voiding is appropriate. That's not what you hear from the patient. What you hear from the patient is, I know I have to go, I can't hold it, I have accidents trying to get to the bathroom. 
What about your suprasacral cord injuries? These are lesions above S1 to S2, most commonly a spinal cord injury, spina bifida, sometimes MS lesions affecting the cord above S1 to S2. Sometimes you'll hear people refer to patients with suprasacral cord lesions as having an upper motor neuron disorder. So you already know you have a spinal cord injury that's interrupted all of the pathways that normally provide communication between the brain, the midbrain and the pons, and the bladder and the sphincter. So there's gonna be loss of sensory awareness, there's going to be loss of volitional control avoiding. <clears throat> the patient feels as if they don't know what's going on with their bladder and they have no control over their bladder. One good thing about suprasacral injuries is that that reflex arc between the sacral cord and the bladder remains intact. So if you remember when you have a cord injury, you retain reflex activity below the level of the lesion. You lose voluntary function below that level, but you retain reflex activity. That's actually helpful to patients who have a spinal cord injury or a spinal cord lesion somewhere between S1 and S2 and the cervical cord because at least they have that reflex arc that can empty the bladder. So if you look at the bottom, what happens is as the bladder fills and as it reaches capacity, it activates a reflex arc that causes the parasympathetic nerves to trigger detrusor contraction. The problem is the sphincter. So we talked about this briefly in a previous class. So you have a reflex arc to open, I mean to contract the bladder and to try to force the urine out. That reflex arc affects bladder function only. The reflex arc has no control over sphincter function. So when the bladder contracts, the sphincter may or may not open to permit unobstructed voiding. You have to remember that normally that coordinated voiding process where the sphincter opens and then the bladder contracts, that's controlled by the pons and all communication between the pons, the bladder, and the sphincter has been lost. So the sphincter might open. That allows the bladder to contract and empty effectively. Great, no problem. But if the sphincter does not open, if the sphincter remains closed when the bladder's contracting, now you have outlet obstruction, increased risk of reflux, increased risk of renal damage. Also remember we said if the lesion's above T6 to T8, the patient's also at risk for autonomic dysreflexia. And that is the term given to the syndrome that occurs when patients with upper motor neuron lesions are exposed to noxious stimuli like an overly full bladder, an overly full rectum, and infected pressure injury. It activates that sympathetic nervous system outflow tract at T10 to L1, and you get massive sympathetic stimulation, which causes increase in blood pressure, increase in pulse rate, massive headache, requires emergency intervention.
What if you have a sacral spinal cord lesion? This is also known as a lower motor neuron lesion. You see a very different picture. You still have loss of communication between the cortex and the pons, the bladder, and the sphincter. So again, this patient tells you, no, I don't know when my bladder's full, and I can't make my bladder empty. I can't make it do anything. I can't stop urination, and I can't make it happen. <clears throat> but this patient has also lost the reflex arc because the reflex arc is located at S1 to S2. So if you have a sacral level lesion, then it's interrupted the reflex arc as well. The bladder can send messages or try to send a message over to the cord that it's full. The message never gets to the cord because that reflex arc, that pathway has been interrupted. So now the bladder's just sitting there in the pelvis <clears throat> with no innervation. No reflex arc, no innervation from the brain, from the pons, and so what does it do? It just sits and fills till it is so full that overflow leakage begins to occur. So this is a very severely distended bladder like you see on the top slide. <clears throat> it's totally lost contractility. It fills excess urine overflows, it fills excess urine overflows, but it never empties. Now we've talked a lot about the specific etiologic factors, so we'll go through this pretty quickly. At the level of the cortex, it's usually traumatic brain injury, a stroke, Parkinson's, occasionally normal pressure hydrocephalus. At the level of the spinal cord, it's usually trauma, spinal cord injury, or a congenital lesion like spina bifida with myelomeningocele, or sometimes MS affecting the spinal cord. The clinical presentation obviously is going to be dependent on the location and the severity of the lesion. <clears throat> so you look at CNS lesions, stroke, Parkinson's, MS, traumatic brain injury. What will these patients tell you? They will complain of frequency. They will complain of urgency. They will complain of leakage on the way to the bathroom. They will complain of nocturia. So essentially, this patient has overactive bladder and urge incontinence due to a neurologic lesion interfering with the ability of the cortex to control bladder function. If it's a stroke, most patients will experience some resolution over time. If it's Parkinson's, they tend to get worse. If it's MS, they tend to get worse. If it's traumatic brain injury, they tend to get some resolution. <clears throat> If you have a suprasacral cord lesion, so a lesion between S1, S2 <clears throat> and the cervical level, what will they have? They will lose the awareness of bladder filling. So if you ask them, do you know when you have to void? Do you know how you, when you have to urinate? No. In fact, they look at you like you're stupid. No, I don't know that. And no, I can't control voiding. I can't give you a urine specimen. So I can't initiate voiding, I can't delay voiding, I don't even know when I have to go. I just go. What makes them go? The bladder fills, that activates the reflex arc, they partially or completely empty. 
The issue with suprasacral cord lesions is primarily that bladder sphincter dyssynergia that we keep talking about. If the bladder is contracting and the sphincter is contracting, then you've got outlet obstruction. Outlet obstruction can cause major complications with reflux and upper tract damage. In contrast, if you have a sacral cord lesion, you have no awareness of bladder filling, no volitional control over bladder function, no ability to initiate or delay voiding. You also do not have the reflex arc, so you have an acontractile bladder that distends to capacity, and then you get overflow leakage. How do you diagnose neurogenic bladder? When a patient comes in and they're wheelchair-bound or scooter-bound, you already know something's going on neurologically. So that if they come in with a bladder control issue or a bladder management issue, and they obviously have a neurologic process, then you know they probably have neurogenic bladder. If you talk to them and they tell you, <clears throat> I don't really know when I have to go, and I have no voluntary control or minimal voluntary control, now you've just confirmed that disconnect between the neurologic centers in the head and the brain and sphincter in the pelvis. <clears throat> now there is one patient where they might come in and they might not have a known diagnosis, and that is a patient who has new onset MS, multiple sclerosis. So early symptoms of MS include blurred vision, loss of bladder control, and sometimes falls. So if loss of bladder control is their primary symptom, that might bring them to the clinic. And they might not yet have a di diagnosis of MS, but there will be clues. First of all, they're gonna tell you, I don't know what's going on with my bladder. Sometimes I feel like I have to go and I can't go. Sometimes I don't even know I have to go, and all of a sudden I'm wet. So what do you hear? A disconnect between the brain and the bladder and the sphincter. Many times if you then ask that patient, have you had any recent issues with falls? They'll say, yeah, that's the other thing. All of a sudden I'm so clumsy. Or, and I also have blurred vision. The other thing you'll notice is that most patients with new onset MS are relatively young. So many of them are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. The age at which incontinence is not typically an issue, especially for males. So if they have a known neurologic disorder and bladder control problems, you know they have neurogenic bladder. If they have a clinical presentation that suggests a total disconnect between the brain and the bladder. I think I have to go and then I can't. I don't even know I have to go and I'm wet that strongly suggests a neurologic process. If they have other neurologic symptoms as well, that further confirms the likelihood that something neurologic is going on and that they need further workup. Now, when you do your physical exam, if you check for anal wink, if you check for the bulbocavernosis reflex, you'll find those typically absent in patients with spinal cord lesions. You may or might not actually do that assessment, but if you do, that's what you would find. Obviously, post-void residual measurement is absolutely critical in any patient with a spinal cord lesion, 
any patient with other risk factors for retention. Anybody with a spinal cord lesion or a spinal cord process should have a post-void residual measurement done because if they have a sacral level lesion, their bladder is probably totally full at all times, and you're going to pick that up if you do a catheterization or if you do an ultrasound. If they have an upper cord lesion, like a cervical or a thoracic lesion, they're still at risk for retention because they may have dyssynergia. So essentially everyone with a spinal cord lesion should get post-void residual measurement. Any patient who has anything in their history to make you worry about retention should also get post-void residual measurements. What about urodynamics or video urodynamics? Those are highly recommended for any patient with a spinal cord issue because you need to know, is the bladder contracting at all? What happens when the bladder contracts? Does the sphincter open or does the sphincter remain closed? Now management is gonna depend on where the lesion's located and the severity of the pathology. And a lot of the management options are going to go back to things we've already discussed. So let's say this patient has bladder dysfunction following stroke, bladder dysfunction due to Parkinson's or to traumatic brain injury. Remember we said that their clinical picture is going to look the same as a patient with overactive bladder and urge incontinence. And the management will be the same as well. So you're gonna to talk to them about fluid management, you're going to tell them to avoid bolus drinking because that will overwhelm their bladder and their sphincter. You're going to suggest that they do a trial of reduced intake of irritants such as caffeine, such as aspartame. You're going to suggest they stop smoking if they haven't already stopped smoking. You will definitely assess bowel function because we know constipation is very common in these patients and it's one of our reversible factors. So we're going to eliminate any retained stool. We're going to get them on an effective bowel management program. We're going to assess their mobility and their dexterity. So if they know they have to void, can they get from here to the toilet? How long does it take them? How hard is it for them to prepare to void? So do we need to do anything with those issues? Do I need a PT consult? Do they need a walker? Do they need different clothing? But basically, we're going to do the same thing we do for our patients with overactive bladder. We're going to teach them freeze, squeeze, breathe. And we're going to put them on a bladder retraining program if they're cognitively intact, able to participate, and motivated to participate. We'll think about medications. Who might benefit from medications? Well, a lot, most of our stroke patients, most of our Parkinson's patients, or older. So if I have a postmenopausal female who's having problems with urgency and frequency, one of the reversible factors I'll be assessing is, is there evidence of atrophic urethritis and vaginitis? If there is, I know that that's further contributing to bladder irritability, and I'm going to suggest a trial of topical estrogen unless there's a contraindication. If the patient has refractory frequency and urgency, I'm going to consider anti-muscarinics. 
And finally, I'm going to realize that most of these patients will need containment products short term. So yes, I'm going to counsel them about diet and fluids. Yes, I'm going to counsel them about irritants. Yes, I'm going to teach them freeze, squeeze, breathe, and put them on a bladder retraining program. But for right now, I've also got to manage their leakage, so I'm probably going to put them in pull-up, absorbent briefs, and make sure that they're doing appropriate skin care. Now, we have already discussed the whole bladder retraining, freeze, squeeze, breathe program in detail in the class on overactive bladder and urge incontinence. We've also talked about antimuscarinics, anticholinergics, and estrogen in that class. So for more detail, you want to go back to that section of the course. Okay, let's talk about spinal cord lesions. So what are our goals in managing a patient with a spinal cord injury, some kind of spinal cord lesion, and managing their bladder? Well, number one goal is we want to protect the kidneys. We want to prevent renal damage. That's going to be absolutely critical in the patient who has dysenergia causing outlet obstruction and resulting in high pressure retention. We want to make sure the bladder is emptying at intervals so that we eliminate stasis and the risk of UTI. And we want to prevent or manage urinary incontinence so this individual can get back to their life. How do we do that? <clears throat> we might need to get OT involved to improve mobility and dexterity because the treatment of choice, the management approach of choice for any patient with a spinal cord injury is clean intermittent catheterization. Why? Well, think about the patient with a sacral level lesion. That bladder is completely full. They've totally lost the ability to empty on their own. So if you do clean intermittent catheterization, you'll empty the bladder at regular intervals, allow it to refill. You'll empty it, allow it to refill. So you'll restore normal patterns of bladder function. You will be able to prevent leakage in the vast majority of patients. You'll reduce their risk of urinary tract infection because you've eliminated stasis. What if I have a patient who has a cord level lesion at say T6 or C7? That patient's at risk for bladder sphincter dyssynergia. So if I teach that patient intermittent catheterization, not only do they empty the bladder at routine intervals before it gets full enough to activate the reflex arc, but I also bypass the sphincter. Dyssynergia becomes a non-issue because I'm going to insert a catheter, drain the bladder at regular intervals. So it will empty the bladder at routine intervals, it eliminates any issues with bladder sphincter dyssynergia and outlet obstruction, helps prevent incontinence, and helps prevent urinary tract infection. Clean intermittent catheterization has revolutionized bladder care for the patient with a spinal cord injury or spinal cord lesion. But not all patients are able to do that, so we have to assess their ability to manage the catheter and manage the procedure. Now, we talked about clean intermittent catheterization in detail in the class on voiding dysfunction and urinary retention. 
So for details on how to set up the schedule, how to teach the patient, how to prevent complications, you want to go back to that class. What else is an option for the patient with a spinal cord lesion? Well, male patients, some of them, could use condom drainage. So this is a pretty simple system. They wear a condom catheter that's connected to a leg bag, or at night they may connect to a bedside drainage bag. So this is one option, and a lot of men prefer to wear the condom catheter connected to the leg bag. They'd rather do that than do catheterization. But the problem with this is it does not improve bladder emptying. It does not compensate for bladder sphincter dyssynergia, so it's appropriate only for the patient whose bladder empties effectively that is, the patient whose lesion is above the level of the sacral cord and who has no major issues with dyssynergia. So before I talk to a patient about use of condom drainage, I've got to relook at their history, where is their lesion. I've got to make sure that their post-void residual measurements are low and that their bladder is emptying effectively. What if I have a patient who really wants to use condom drainage? He's read about it, he's talked to other guys with a spinal cord injury and they're like, this is so much easier, why don't you just do this? So he really wants to use it, but he consistently has residual urine and we know from his urodynamic studies that he has mild to moderate sphincter dyssynergia. Then sometimes we can use medications to open up the proximal urethra, the bladder neck, Sometimes we can use alpha adrenergic antagonists to eliminate that bladder sphincter dyssynergia and to allow the patient to use condom drainage. If we did a trial of that, of course, we would have to follow up to be sure that post-void residual measurements are very low. Now, once again, we have talked about use of condom catheters in our class on functional incontinence. So if you want more details about how to use them effectively, go back to that section. What about pharmacologic therapy? Does that play a role? Does that have anything to offer our patients with spinal cord lesions? Well, sometimes we use antimuscarinics or beta-3 agonists or onobotulinum toxin A administered into the bladder itself to eliminate detrusor contractions. So let's say I have a patient, he's paraplegic, so he has a lesion at T10. Wheelchair-bound, he's using intermittent catheterization. But he's complaining that he still has leakage episodes in between catheterization, even though he's modified his fluid intake and he's modified his catheterization schedule. He's like, can't you do something to just settle my bladder down so I don't have leakage episodes in between catheterization. I'm doing this so I won't be wet. Yes, we could try antimuscarinics or beta-3 agonists or the onobotulinum toxin to relax the detrusor muscle and to reduce contractility, hopefully to eliminate leakage episodes. We frequently use alpha adrenergic antagonists to open up the proximal urethra and reduce urethral resistance in the patient who wants to use condom drainage but has some degree of dyssynergia. 
So yes, we do use medications, but as you see, they're always adjunct therapy, adjunct to intermittent catheterization, adjunct to condom drainage. What about containment and absorbent products? Yes, sometimes we have to use indwelling catheters for a short period of time, but remember that indwelling catheters are always your very last resort. They do compensate for incomplete emptying, but they carry such a high risk of infection that you never want to use an indwelling catheter as long-term management. Typically, we use them for female patients for short-term management while we're developing a long-term management program. Absorbent products in skincare, frequently needed for patients as adjunct therapy if they have any leakage at all between catheterizations. So they might need to wear absorbent briefs. They might to need to wear an absorbent pad in their underwear. Surgery has usually a very limited role to play for these patients. If you have a patient with a neurologic lesion, you do urodynamics and you find that they have a very small capacity bladder, so they're really not a good candidate for intermittent catheterization because their bladder doesn't hold enough, then there's a procedure known as augmentation cystoplasty that can be used to increase bladder capacity and reduce bladder contractility. So all they do is they open the bladder, they take a little piece of small intestine, they detubularize that piece of small intestine, they attach it to the bladder. So now you've done two things. You have anatomically increased capacity, but you've also interrupted muscle fibers, so you've reduced contractility. So that can be of great benefit to a patient who is managing with intermittent catheterization because now you've given them greater capacity, longer intervals between catheterizations, reduced contractility, and therefore reduced risk of leakage. So some of our spinal cord injured patients, some of our spina bifida patients do benefit from augmentation cystoplasty. You'll find that some of your spina bifida patients also have high pressure bladders because their bladder's been working against a closed outlet for many years. And those patients also benefit from augmentation cystoplasty to protect the kidneys. Finally, as a very last resort, and I have a number of patients who have elected this option, you could suggest urinary diversion. If you have a female patient and she's like, I cannot catheterize myself. I'm in a wheelchair, I'm heavy, I have very limited upper body strength, very limited dexterity in my hands, I cannot get to my urethra to catheterize myself, I can't even position myself appropriately. Then that patient should be considered for a standard urinary diversion or for a continent procedure where you have an internal reservoir with a catheterizable abdominal stoma. Most of the time what happens with those female patients is they get an indwelling catheter, indwelling Foley, indwelling suprapubic. Either way, they're going to have a very high incidence of urinary tract infections that can cause renal damage over time. So we wanna be thinking of options for treatment that are appropriate for the individual patient 
and for their limitations, but that don't create additional problems down the road. Okay, so what is neurogenic bladder dysfunction? It's loss of bladder control in a patient with a neurologic process. It can be divided into three major categories. Your central nervous system lesions are typically things like stroke, Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, and Delmes. These patients usually present with urgency, frequency, nocturia, and leakage. They should be managed essentially the same as your patient with overactive bladder and urge incontinence. You're gonna use behavioral therapies, urge suppression strategies, bladder retraining, medications, and absorbent products. Patients with suprasacral cord lesions. These are your paraplegics, most of your paraplegics, all of your quadriplegics. These are patients who lack sensory awareness of bladder filling. They have no volitional control of bladder function. They cannot initiate or delay voiding. They do have the reflex arc that causes the bladder to empty when it's full. But many times they have issues with bladder sphincter dyssynergia. The bladder contracts, the sphincter does not open. They end up with bladder outlet obstruction and high pressure retention. What do we use as management? Management of choice is clean intermittent catheterization. We might need to use medications to open up the proximal urethra if there's really tight resistance. We might need to use medications to reduce contractility if they have leakage between catheterizations. We might be able to use condom drainage in selected patients. Most patients will require some use of absorbent products in addition to their clean intermittent catheterization program. And a very few patients will benefit from surgery, either to enlarge the bladder and reduce contractility or to provide urinary diversion, typically in women. Your patients who have sacral cord lesions lose sensory awareness, they lose volitional control, and they have no way to empty the bladder because now the reflex arc has also been interrupted. These patients get severe retention with overflow. The management of choice, again, is clean intermittent catheterization because it will drain the bladder at regular intervals. It will eliminate retention. They might need medications. They might need absorbent products. If they cannot manage with clean intermittent catheterization, they might need urinary diversion surgery. So that summarizes neurogenic bladder. You're done with this one. Thank you.